gray, rainy, windy. You just pulled into a port that most of the year is a great stop, but now getting into the winter, the water in the harbor is rough, exposed to the storms at sea. But just one day's sail away, there's a better port where you can spend the winter in safety. Your shipments decide the next time the wind is in your favor, you'll make a break for it and head for the safer port. Finally, the day arrives. Sunrise brings a gentle wind in your favor. The ship is a flurry of activity as it is made ready and pulls out of harbor. But soon, the wind begins to pick up and change direction. Within hours, it's a full-blown tempest, driving the ship straight towards the most dangerous stretch of water you know. Every year, ships are smashed on those rocks and sandbars, and those on board are seldom heard from again. The sailors do everything they can to slow you down in the hopes that the weather will change before you are driven to those dangerous waters. But the sea is rough. Waves continually splash over the sides of the ship and weigh it down. With each rocking of the boat, you barely manage to catch your breath and get your bearings before the ship tips you over again. As stormy day replaces terrifying night, only the faintest of light breaks through the storm, just enough to let you know it is day, but not enough to get any idea of direction. At night, it's worse, perfect blackness, with no gleam of star or shine of moon to give you hope. Days go by, with the storm slowly battering the ship apart, as seawater once again pours over the side of the deck, drenching you for the millionth time. It snuffs out the last flickering candle of your hope that you might make it out of this alive. There's something about us that loves a tale of dangerous seas, isn't there? I'm quite certain if the Book of Acts were made into a Hollywood movie, chapter 27 would receive a pretty big focus in uh, the book or in the movie. And actually, even Luke spends a pretty disproportionate percentage of time relating uh, this incident to the point that some critics have suggested that this chapter does more to promote Luke's literary goals than his theological points. Well, to me, the fact that the Bible contains many passages of stellar literary value is not something to be criticized, but makes me appreciate all the more God's word. And I would argue that this passage does contain rich theological value because we get to see Paul's worldview lived out in an exhaustingly difficult situation. Let's uh, turn to chapter 27, Acts 27. And we will read the first uh, 26 verses. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. 
And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage now was dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incur this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have allowed to be recorded um, these stories of excitement and adventure um, that are different from what we see in literature and in movies that there is content here that teaches us who you are and who we are meant to be. God, I pray that you would give us your spirit in this moment to illuminate these words for us. We would understand your message, the message that Luke was communicating to the ancient church, but also your message for us today. I think it's exciting as we're nearing the end of this book of Acts that uh, some of the kind of pieces that we've seen throughout the rest of the book are coming back in. Uh, that Luke is making sure to emphasize when things are uh, showing up again. 
Uh, in verse 2, it talks about Aristarchus joining them on the ship. And this is actually the third time he's been mentioned in the book of Acts. In chapter 19, Aristarchus was hanging out with Paul and was hauled in with him after the riot in Ephesus. In uh, chapter 20, it says that Aristarchus continued with Paul in Macedonia and in Greece. And Paul writes about him twice in his letters. In his letter to the Colossians, he calls him his fellow prisoner. And in Philemon, uh, verse 24, Paul calls Aristarchus his fellow worker. So evidently, Aristarchus was somebody who was pretty important to Paul in the final years of his ministry, a companion and a fellow prisoner uh, because of his faith, just as Paul was a prisoner for his faith. And it says we. Uh, all throughout this chapter, it's talking about we. And we understand from that that Luke, uh, the, the author of the book of Acts, is present on this ship with them as well. So when it says we, we're talking about Paul, Aristarchus, Luke, uh, some other prisoners, the Roman soldiers, and then the sailors on this ship. It says in verse 3 that they put in at Sidon, and that Paul was given leave to uh, go and see his friends. And it's not surprising that he had friends in Sidon, because he and Barnabas had passed through there in chapter 15, uh, coming from Antioch in Syria, and then going to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. So... They were able to visit once again with the church there in Sidon. In verse 4, it says that they left there and went under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And if you look up at this map, if you were going to try to sail directly from Caesarea Maritima here over to Rome at the end, don't go too close to that speaker, you would go uh, south of Cyprus. And on the west side, you go straight across the Mediterranean Sea. But at this time, they were not able to do that because the winds, the trade winds, are blowing down from the northwest. And so they had to go up by the land where they would be protected from those winds, just in, able to, uh, in order to make any progress at all. In verse 7, it says that they made this uh, stretch of the journey with difficulty. And I find that translation really not satisfactory. Difficulty doesn't really begin to describe it because... This word in Greek uh, suggests that it's every bit of strength and skill that these sailors can muster. It's not just, you know, it was kind of hard and I had to focus and get it done. No, this is every scrap, every ounce that they could put towards this task. And even so, they were barely successful. Really fast, this trip is already getting difficult. Not what they had planned for. But it says, uh, with difficulty, they finally made it to Fair Havens, which, when I was first reading through this, I, I never understood, like, why would you leave the Fair Havens to go across this nasty, stormy sea to someplace else? Why not just do the obvious thing, like Paul was saying, and stay there? Well, Fair Havens was not so fair a haven in the winter. It was directly exposed to the storms at sea because it wasn't like a closed-off port with a strip of land to protect it. It was just open um, and, and open directly to the Mediterranean Sea facing south. In verse 9, it says that even the fast was already over. The voyage was now dangerous because the fast was over. And we're talking about the Day of Atonement there, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which comes in late September or early October, depending on the year. So just like we use Labor Day to mark the ceremonial end of summer, uh, the Day of Atonement would have marked the more ceremonial, more important date when you've got to be crazy to set out to sea. And Paul sees all of this, and 
says that he perceives the voyage will be with much injury and loss. We just read the rest of the passage for the day, and it's weird that in verse 10 he's saying, we're all going to die. And in verse 24 he's going to say, nobody's going to die. I think we need to understand that in verse 10 here, Paul is not saying that he's had a divine revelation. He's just saying, this is what I know from being on the sea. This is our cultural knowledge. This is my personal experience. Let's not do this. This is a bad idea. It's a logical conclusion based on his experience rather than some kind of a divine message that he had received. But the majority decided that they wanted to try for Phoenix, which, again, is like, why would you go on this dangerous sea just to go to a different port? Why would you risk it? And um, I understand that a little bit more when we realize that Phoenix is just a one-day's journey away from, uh, from Fairhaven's. So you can kind of start to see, would we risk one day? I mean, one day's weather is fairly predictable, right? You wake up in the morning, you see, is it stormy? And if it's not, you go for it. And you can be there and be in a much better place to spend the winter. There's a contrast here that Luke is giving us. A contrast between Paul's caution and the optimism of the majority on the ship. So they set out, and in verse 15, it says that the ship was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. Modern sailing ships have the ability to tack against the wind. So if you're trying to go and the wind's coming this way, they could kind of go back and forth and make some headway in the direction that they wanted to go. It's not as fast as if you've got the wind at your back, but it's possible. On these ancient sailing vessels, that was not possible. That technology had not been developed yet. And so when it says that they were driven along by the wind, yeah, they had no choice but to go with the wind. In verse 16, it says, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Again, this is every scrap, every ounce of strength they had uh, muster just to get their rowboat up onto the ship. Normally, this uh, ship's boat, this life raft, would have been towed behind the ship so that there'd be more space to work on the decks of these vessels that were not that large. But evidently, there was a concern that either the boat would be lost by the ropes breaking or coming disconnected, or perhaps that the, rope, uh, the boat would be smashed into the ship and destroyed, or even worse, to break the ship itself. And there goes your life raft, there goes your ship, you're out of luck. So they decide to pull it up onto the board, uh, on board the ship. Even with that, they're concerned about where they're headed. They know what is in the direction uh, that, that waits for them, Sirtis. At this point, it's 380 miles away from where they are. This would have been probably at least a week of direct sailing if they were trying to get there. But there's this extreme concern because they know what Sirtis is like. This is a legendary shipwreck area. Think uh, Bermuda Triangle. It's a series of sandy bars and small islands. And if you get blown that direction in a storm, there is not much hope of the ship surviving. And so knowing what's up ahead, they decide to undergird the ship. They take ropes and tie it around the boat so that the thing won't be beat apart. Can you imagine being on a wooden ship and having to worry about bits of your ship being broken off by the waves? And they're so concerned about it, they're going to wrap it up with ropes. 
It says that they lowered the gear, and that word gear, it could be referring to the anchor, um, that they would lower down into the sea to try to slow them down. It could be referring to the sails, or perhaps both. But we need to understand that the sails were the primary way of steering the ship. And so if you pull down those sails, you no longer have the ability to make large corrections to the direction that the ship will be moving. Verse four, uh, 18, they begin to jettison the cargo and throw the ship's tackle overboard. So obviously they'd already begun to take on water. They're trying to lighten the load. And the situation got so bad that they threw out the tools that they would have needed to direct the ship in the direction that they needed to go. And it keeps on getting worse. In verse 20, it says that neither sun nor stars had appeared for several days. They had no GPS unit. They had no Google Maps. They didn't even have a compass in all likelihood. The way that they would have navigated was to look at the stars, to get the direction from the where the sun rises and the way it sets. And so even if they had the tackle left to be able to control the ship, they didn't know where they were. They didn't know where they wanted to go. They really probably didn't even know whether the wind was still blowing them towards Sirtis or some other direction. We need to understand the complete sense of confusion and lostness that they had. Verse 20, it says that at last all hope was abandoned. They'd been without food by this time for many days and that's kind of confusing because uh, in verse 33 that Joe will preach from uh, next week, it says or implies that they had plenty of food on board. They just weren't eating it. They're so afraid, so stressed out, this entire ship of men, they stopped eating. And at precisely this moment when they had all lost hope, Paul steps up. We see a reversal of the contrast that we had earlier, don't we? Before, it was Paul who was cautious and the majority who were optimistic. Now, it's the majority who is without hope. And Paul has a different vision of what's going on. He says, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. God, uh, Paul knew who God was. Paul knew his proper relationship to God, that Paul belongs to the God who made him. Paul belongs to God by creation, just as all people do. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his because he made us. That's true of all of creation. We are his. We belong to him. But Paul also belonged to God by redemption. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price purchased by the blood of Jesus. Paul belongs to God twice over. Because he knows who this God is, he can trust the message that's given to him. The message that the angel gave him is, do not be afraid, Paul. Again, this is the third time that Paul's gotten this message of divine courage delivered to him by a messenger from God. 
He got it in chapter 18 and again in chapter 23. We need to understand that Paul needed this encouragement. He was not some kind of superhero, you know, steely man of steel, uh, cape and all that stuff. He was a man. And he described his own ministry as being characterized with weakness and fear and trembling. God says, do not fear. Verse 24, it says that God has granted the lives of all those on the ship. We need to understand that Paul was praying for them. This is Paul asking for safety, not just for himself, but for the people on the ship. And God said, yes, I hear your prayer and I grant it to you. Just like when Abraham interceded for the righteous people in Sodom. God has granted this prayer mercifully. And the word choice here that Luke uses emphasizes the graciousness of the giver. God had no obligation to answer this prayer of Paul's, but he did. He said, yes, I will give the lives of those that you have asked for. And then the past tense that's used here, God has granted. Not God will granted. Not God's planning to grant. God has granted. It is done. It's already done. It's already been decided. This isn't a case where Paul is praying for something. God says, I'll put it on my to-do list, see what I can do. No, this has been decided. God has granted the lives that are with him. And the conclusion of that in verse 25 is take heart. Take heart. Literally, Paul is saying there, be of good cheer. Cheer up. Go back to eating. We have hope here. But we must run aground on some island. Paul's saying at the rate we're going, there's no doubt we're going to hit something. But we're going to be okay. What message did Paul use to give hope to these people? Did he say to them, stick a smile on your face, we're all going to die, but uh, if you say this magic prayer, I know a guy, after your body washes up on the beach, he'll take your soul and find a cloud and a harp for you. Is that what he said? No. Can you imagine if he did? Those sailors would have clobbered him, and, and rightly so. But that idea, sadly fairly closely represents what many people believe about the world and about the gospel. So many people believe that God isn't real, or if he is, that he doesn't really care about the physical world, that he doesn't step in. And if that's your view, then the conclusion is, if you want to be happy, do the best you can to get rich so you can have as much earthly pleasure as you can stand while you're here pretty well sums up the meaning of life for many people, even Christians. Christians will tend to tack on a little something to the end. Do your best to get rich while you're alive so that you can go to heaven, uh, so that you can be happy while you're in earth. And then say this prayer to save your soul so you can go to heaven when you die. And if that's what you believe, your gospel is too small. Most people's understanding of the eternal destination of the Christian does not match what the Bible teaches. We envision our souls leaving our body and going up to heaven to be where God is. 
And the Bible does teach that that is something that happens. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Philippians chapter 1, Luke 23, Hebrews 12. We see it with Enoch. Like uh, Joe mentioned earlier, Christians, when they die, do go immediately to be with God in heaven. But that's not the end. That's not the end. That's the intermediate state. Their souls go there not forever, but to wait to wait for something that is even more glorious. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Philippians chapter 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. This is not a disembodied state that we are looking forward to. New bodies. Why do we need them? Why do we need new bodies? Because we will live in the new heavens and the new earth. That's described in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The final state that we're looking forward to is not a disembodied state floating around on clouds. It is heaven on earth, literally. Joined together to place the location of the whole blessedness of God's presence here in this creation, with every shred of sin gone, every consequence, every brokenness gone. Sin broke the four fundamental relationships of life, the relationship with God, the relationship with others, relationship with self and creation. We see clearly three of those broken relationships in this passage that we've studied with Paul's shipmates. Clearly their relationship with nature had been broken. They were in the midst of this frightful storm. And their relationship with self was broken because they were so afraid that they weren't taking care of their own bodies. They had stopped eating Their relationship with God was broken. If it was not, they would have been full of hope like Paul was instead of 
afraid as they were. And I think we can infer that with people this afraid, this much under stress, they probably didn't spend every moment of this terrifying journey in perfect agreement with everybody around them. Making an inference about the fourth relationship here, but I think it's a safe one. God's end game is to restore all four of those relationships. Completely and finally in the new heavens and the new earth. But he doesn't wait until the end to begin that work. Paul's words show God's power and his interest to begin restoring those relationships now. Paul tells his shipmates to take heart, be of good cheer. Why? Because God has granted all those who sail with you. This storm represents a break in your relationship with nature, but this will not last forever. And your terror has filled you with a break in your relationship with yourself, but this will not last forever. Because God will bring about everything that he has planned, and he will preserve his people to ensure that they are able to accomplish the work that he has prepared beforehand for them to do. So what's that work? My work, your work, and Paul's work, it's all the same. We are to be God's agents of change. To begin restoring those relationships that have been broken This life is not just waiting around for your turn to go to heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. That truth has to change the way you live. It means your life's purpose is to pay attention to those who are around you and where their relationship with self or with others or with creation or with God is broken. Your job is to speak God's words of restoration to them. Lift up your eyes from the humdrum of life because you are part of something bigger. When we have our vision set on what God has planned, new bodies, new heaven, new earth, and starting that work now, not after we die, those restorations of relationships can happen now. That frees us to do the work that we are to do, just as Paul did We have hope for that day and in this one. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that that what you have planned is better than what we could even imagine. I pray that you would fill us with an understanding of that. That you would free us from the boring life that we live in so often, that our days would be filled with service to you, with purpose, as we love the people around us, as we care for the creation that you have made, as we even sit down to eat or sleep, that we should understand that all of that is worshiping you, as we are restoring those broken relationships that sin has caused. And God, I thank you that you have given your son, that you 
have purchased your people by his blood, that you have brought reconciliation between us and yourself, that first relationship restored with you so that the other three can be found. Thank you, God.